All right, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode number eight, the Lo-Fi edition. <laughs> we had big plans here to uh, record this in studio, but we had an epic failure, and I'll take blame for it. Um, in the studio today, literally in the studio, we have John Weld, Green Race promoter, attainment master, and owner of Immersion Research. How's it, how's it going, John? Uh, great, thank you. Good to be here. Also, we have the oldest Weld child, Aiden Weld. Welcome to the show, Aiden. Thank you for having me. Yep, there we go. And we don't have a Lewis uh, this week, so I am going to fill in for him, um, John Grace, the show producer, and go over our conservation piece for Outdoor Alliance. Uh, it'll probably won't be as well thought out as Lewis's normally are. Um. Where is Lewis, by the way? He's totally MIA. He's totally MIA. Let's look and see if he's on Skype here. Do you think he's safe? Should we send someone to his house? He's probably kayaking. He's probably kayaking. <laughs> he's, he's probably out on the river. I think, uh, you know, I think the election hit Lewis and his cause is pretty hard. He may be just working overtime. That could be. I would be surprised. Um, going on to our first... Um, line of business, I'm going to go into our conservation piece, and what I want to touch on here is the National Forest Service Trail Stewardship Act. It was an act that was uh, first initiated in 2015, has now passed the Senate on its way to the executive branch. Um, basically what this does is it's a trail development strategy for the national forest system. And what it does is streamlines the process for volunteers to get in and work on and build trails. So this may not sound like a very important thing, but from experience on, in working with um, like state management bodies and developing trails for the Green River Games, a big impediment was they didn't have a budget or they didn't have a system in place for people who normally worked with the logging companies, normally worked with special events to allow people to go in and work on trails. So you would ask to go work on a trail and the land managers would say, well, we can't do that because we don't have the budget for that. Or we can't afford to send staff in there to monitor the situation. This streamlines the process so volunteers whether it be biking, hiking, equestrian, can go in and um, maintain and build trails. These are for exi no for existing trails or build new trails. Well, I think it's for existing trails, and I also think there's a process to um, work on unimproved trails. Now, the actual lane of trails, I'm not 100 percent sure how that's going to go down. Hmm. But personally, I think that this is a uh, a good thing for recreational users out in out in the forest. I guess. I don't know. You, you sound like you do some, some uh, trail work, certainly for the Green River Games. Yeah. Well, I think this will streamline the process, and it, it won't make trail building seem like you just got to put yourself in a land manager situation. Is he going to get in trouble? Is he going to be – there's nothing written out for him to deal with that. So it's almost like before he was sticking his neck out or she was sticking her neck out to allow this trail work. Mm -hmm. But now – Oh, this is what we do when somebody wants to work on a trail. And they say what? You have volunteers, go ahead. You're yeah, they, I'm sure that there's going to be, you know, if you're going to be cutting, you have to 
have some kind of arborist certification certification if you're you know i'm sure there's going to be certain things that they're going to want to know about your group but i imagine once you get that set up it'll simply be hey we're going to work on the trails today okay you know we'll there's nothing going on there there's no logging there's no nothing have at it all right all right that was short that wasn't quite the in-depth thing we get from from mr gellman well, <laughs> I did my best. You know, this this is this involved Congress. I bet Lewis had a part in this, or at least some insider knowledge. I really wish she was here, and right. we'll keep our eye on the. Lewis probably negotiated this at a Hooters somewhere in Capitol Hill with the legislators. Uh, he slipped somebody a twenty, and next thing you know, you can work on the trails. Um, as always, there are multiple ways to subscribe to our show. Uh, you can subscribe through YouTube. You can subscribe through iTunes. You can subscribe through Stitcher. Can I go to like po- like my favorite podcasting app and find this? Yeah, like I use uh, Pocket Cast is the one that I use. Pocket Cast, Pocket Cast will scan for this, and you can find it. Yeah, just mm-hmm. simply search for Hammer Factor and subscribe. We have an RSS feed through FeedBurner, which is compatible with pretty much every. Format there is. We try to make it as easy as we can, and we are close to the uh, 600 subscriber mark, which I think is pretty monumental for a high budget operation like this. Quite frankly, I don't think we'd have any subscribers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't for the longest time, and next thing you know, we're you know we're bigger than. All right. So what's up? What's on our agenda here? Today we're going to talk about. Whitewater Parks, but before we do that, we're going to go into a little viewer mail. Right. We love the viewer mail. And I got to say, we have a very special celebrity guest who's going to give us some insight into the Whitewater Park world. That's right. And that is Mr. Scott Shipley. So we have Scott on the line, and we'll patch him here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to go to a little bit of viewer mail. And John, this one, uh, this one involves you. Right. We had uh, we were talking last week about uh, Jackson kayaks and opening up the um, boat design and making products for very small people, kids, right. as well as very big people. Yes, we have a gentleman, uh, Larry Boothby. Is that how you would say that? I'd say so. Yeah, Larry Boothby comes in, sends a message. He's a big Jackson fan. Yep. But he says, "I just wish clothing manufacturers." in parentheses, Mr. Weld, exclamation mark, mm-hmm. would make some gear that fit us short, fat, old guys a little better. Right. You won't see us running the green, but we're on lots of other rivers, and we double ARP crew generally have money to make purchases with, as opposed to the typical dirt bag. Love the show. Keep them coming. What do you think about that, John? I think, well, okay, so this came, we somehow, someone in our office saw this uh, piece of mail and it sparked a discussion in the office. Um, and many people in, in, the, in our team thought you, uh, Mr. Boothby here had an excellent point. Um, you know, it, I, I guess one thing we have to consider is that we don't sell our gear necessarily exclusively to customers. We sell to retailers and we make things that retailers buy from us. Um, so, and, it's, and what I'm getting at is that retailers oftentimes don't want to have to carry four or five different models of dry tops and dry suits. They want to, they want to carry just one. And so they want to know, they want, to, they want us to hit the sweet spot. So that's kind of what, what we're up against. Um, 
However, I think he's made a legitimate point here. Jax has certainly proved that if you build it, they will come. And a startup cost for building a dry top or dry suit is a lot cheaper than the startup cost for building a specialty boat. So uh, I think it's legitimate. I think it's a legitimate thing. We should we should look at that for sure. What if you worked with, you know, what if you what if a what if a retailer had the uh, wherewithal to say, hey, I'm going to put in an order, yeah, and I'm going to spend I don't know how one hundred dollars. You know, I don't know what the figure is, right? But I want to be the guy to have this exclusive product. Now, if a dealer comes to you and has that idea, yeah. and obviously he has taken pre-orders or he has looked out to the, what's he call it, the AARP crew, right. and he knows he's got some buyers, Yeah, could he corner this market? Could a retailer come in and work with someone like you, or would... Or would or would six months later your other retailer say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Well, they could. I mean, probably not, long story short. You know, it's the, to create a dry top or a dry suit, I mean, the thing we're up against, while we don't have tooling costs, we have to make the fabric for these things, um, and then we have to have them made. Um, right off the bat, an initial investment into this kind of project is going to be tens of thousands of dollars. And a store would have to come on board and be willing to buy 300 or 400 of these jackets for us to for them to, to corner that, you know, to have exclusivity of that thing. And, and to be honest, I don't, I can't think of any store that's big enough or has the, you know, willing to take the risk on that kind of thing to make that happen. You need to diversify that risk amongst a bunch of stores. Um, but, you know, I think what we have to do is, is, uh, I mean, what we, what we would do is we would, we would make a sample out of some fabric. We'd show it around. We'd make, you know, maybe make a couple of them and get some feedback from our stores. And we have to go out and, and see and go to our biggest retailers and say, is this something you're interested in? And if it's something they could, they would commit or they at least verbally say they were, they would commit to buying in the upcoming year, we would take it to the next step. That's how, that's how it would work. Hmm. Um, Very interesting. Yeah. Well, this guy's got dollar signs in his viewer mail, so... I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, every, we'll see. Everybody, everybody's <laughs> always got the answer for you. I'm sure. I know. Sure, that's true. Well, we love our viewer mail. Thanks a lot, Larry Boothby, if you're listening. And uh, anyway, we love our viewer mail, and I think we should go and see if we can get Scott on the phone. Yeah, let's do it. Before we do this, I want to give a shout out to our new production assistant, Charlie Kearns. Charlie was instrumental in lining up Scott for this show. Now to our celebrity guest who we have on the line. Um, we have Scott Shipley. And uh, Scott, where are we calling you from? I am in Lyons, Colorado, just north of Boulder, Colorado. Right. Lyons, Colorado was the place that, that flooded. You guys made national news a year or two ago. Yes, we got shellacked. You know, we, we had a one in 500 year flood. And so this little river that, um, that flows maybe 600 CFS in the summer was flowing 30,000 um, and came right up to my doorstep. It didn't get in our house, but I looked out my window and I saw the, it was my dream house, right? I saw the Ottawa, you know, 10 feet from, from my back door um, and any higher than that, it would have it gotten us wet. Did you get evacuated or what, what did you, did you hunker down or what did, what happened? It was a, it was a, well, I was in Prague on business and, uh, and, and my wife said, look, we're trapped. You know, I got a text, water's coming up. And, and she said, uh, I said, don't worry about it. I checked all the models before we bought the house, you know? And then she said, uh, the sub pumps just went on it was the next text. And, and 
just then I got a reverse 911 call and I, I just texted back and said, I'm coming home. I, I had just arrived in Prague about four hours before that. I said, I'm coming home, go for high, high ground and I'll see you in, in two days, you know. And uh, they were, there were seven islands of people trapped in lions and, um, and my wife and two kids, my, my five-year-old and or their four-year-old and seven-year-old were trapped on one of those islands. And, uh, and so I, I snuck in through the kind of national disaster area. I had a friend help me do that and, and got to where they were. And um, we eventually got out uh, and were evacuated for 70 days. So it was, it was, it was quite a thing. So you said 70 days, seven zero. Yeah, we had to go live in a different house for 70 days. And the, the entire town did, the town of 2,000 people. The town upstream from us, it was a little bit, when I snuck in, it was a little bit like Apocalypse Now. You know, we, we were on one of the high spots in town, and people were just showing up with random stuff to dump it off to be part of the recovery. You know, 200 porter bodies showed up all at once. And, you know, some guys making pancakes for the firemen, and army units are coming in and going out, you know, hey, look. Um, there's four people trapped in a tree over here. Go get them, you know. And I kind of sat there watching this happen. And the the town upstream from us was isolated, and so they were evacuating the whole town by helicopter. And so the whole time we're talking, there's a constant freight train of helicopters going in and out of our town, you know, one every five minutes or something like that, and uh, trying to get these people out of the out of the areas where they've been stuck. And so it was it was it was crazy. I mean, it was very crazy. Um, and they had told us, look, you might be stuck in your houses for another two weeks. So hang in there. Don't do anything dumb and we'll make sure you don't starve to death. And, uh, we, we did find a way out. So that worked out for us, but it was, it was the real deal. Yeah. I remember that going down. That's why I asked about, it was an interesting story. So let's talk about, let's talk about what our course is your specialty. What, just briefly, what, what's, what, what's your company and what is your mission statement? What, what do you guys do? So, um, our company is S2O Design, and we design whitewater parks. And our specialty is, is creating sort of innovative and unthought of ways to to create better whitewater. Um, and and that happens both in these pump park things like you see in London and, and uh, Charlotte and Oklahoma City, as well as in natural rivers like Durango or Highway, where we're creating um, natural whitewater parks using using a river that flows out there in nature ahead of time. Right, so I guess basically these parks fall into two categories, sort of the pump-style parks where water's being pumped around, and then you have retrofits into an existing riverbed. Or... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, and I'm guessing the pump ones are, are bigger projects, typically. They're bigger because the, the pumps and the infrastructure and things cost more. And, and what that means is they typically happen in bigger cities. Um, and there is kind of a hybrid which fits in between those two, which we call the bypass channels. And um, I think those are going to start to become a, a, a big thing because they don't take extra energy and they, they're, they're much cheaper to build in relation to uh, Oklahoma City or Charlotte. And what they involve is going out and finding an existing dam, um, you know, maybe like what's going on in Morgantown out your way and saying, let's build a channel around it so fish can get up and kayakers can have this channel to paddle in. Um, and, and we've looked at several of those and I, I think we'll be implementing some of those in, in the next couple of years. And it, it's a great opportunity to get something that doesn't have any pumping costs that you, you have total control over that whitewater. Um, and that also is kind of a win-win for the environment. You know, you still have a dam, you still get to use your water for 
drinking or generation or things like that. But at the same time, fish can get up and, and people can navigate down. And so you start to get some of that functionality back that, that, that the river had before the dam was built. So who, I mean, do you, who approaches you for these types of projects? I mean, is it, and we're just talking about, I, I'm, I'm guessing the United States is probably a little bit different than the rest of the world. Um, so, uh, but the U.S. who would who would approach you for something like this? Would it be private money or public money or a city or how does that usually work? It you know the one commonality to all of it is is it's one extremely keen kayaker. You know whatever project we get is, is sort of seeded by that that kind of mover and shaker who says, look, I want this in my town or I want to get rid of this dam or I know of a project that's happening that we can piggyback on. And, and that person gets in touch with us and says, how do we get, you know, how, what do I do next? You know, I, I'm just some guy who, um, who, who works in this town, and I, but I want to see it be a place where I can live and paddle at the same time. And from that, you know, we, we start to work with typically local governments to say, all right, this is, um, this is, this is doable and um, let's do a concept design and it's, it's sort of baby steps at first. You know, we, we come in, we do that concept and feasibility study and we say, look, this is a, this is a winner or in some cases you can't do this. It doesn't have enough drop or it's not, it's, it's not enough flow or what have you. And then once we establish feasibility, we also kind of tell them, look, here's where you're at. Here's what it costs to get to, to this conceptual design that we've created for you. And here's how you, how you do it once you have that money and that sort of roadmap typically leads to to a project so i mean do you do you have to cheerlead these projects somewhat to the say the city or whoever that's interested in doing this or do you just got to present information to them and say this is what it is and let me know if you're interested we have to cheerlead i mean the one thing that, that, that that's a real advantage to our company is that that we're we are actually a company made up of paddlers who, who are very passionate about this and understand that product better than any other firm in the world. And so instead of bringing in some guy that sounds like a university professor and, you know, lectures that town, what, what we find ourselves doing, you know, about hydraulics or something like that, what we find ourselves doing is teaching people what that product is because you and I, we're kayakers, we know what a whitewater park looks like. We've been to so many of them. But at the same time, most people are picturing something that's a cross between a bungee jump and a skateboard park, and a bunch of people are running around that can't hold their pants up and put a belt on, and this is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to our town, you know. And so talking to them about what the benefits are for their town, you know, from an economic standpoint, you look at some of these whitewater parks, um, a small one in Golden, Colorado, brings about $2.2 million into that economy every single year. You know, in Durango, about 40 cents on every dollar is spent on something river related. Um, you know, these are drivers that it doesn't cost, as you know, it doesn't cost anything to go get into a natural river whitewater park. But at the same time, these people are spending, you know, on average about a $120 a day in your town when they're there. And that adds up, that adds up to a lot of money over the course of a year. Well, that's, um, that's kind of the thing is that, I mean, you know, I, I guess... I feel like when, when you get around a group of paddlers, you start talking about artificial courses, there's a certain amount of eye rolling that goes on or skepticism, you know what I mean? Or, or the very least some kind of head scratching, like, does this really make sense? Um, and maybe it's a bit of inferiority complex in the, in the part of paddlers, but I think there's a general feeling out there. And I, maybe this is also tainted something by ASCII, which is, I think, unusual in, in a lot of ways um, that, that, these these things money could be spent other ways, and I'm sure. Do you, um, 
Is that something you've heard before or am I way off base on that? Or It's, it, you know, I'm not going to beat up on ASCII, but ASCII was the, maybe the right thing in the wrong place, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And so I hear that more from that part of the world. But from other parts of the world, what we're hearing from these voters is we want more of that. Um, you know, this is something that we that, that extends our season much longer, that um, that provides a very unique sort of focal point for the sport in our community and that makes us mainstream. You know, you, you look at Vail, for example, um, you know, I, I think, John, you can remember going back to the early 90s when we would go there and race on their little Gore Creek because they wanted to fill those hotels that, that are empty six months of the year. Right. Well, that that little race is now a four point five million dollar a year event, four point five million dollars in economic impact in a single weekend on that little creek because a whitewater park was created that, you know, that in addition to the air things that it had grown into that that makes that place a destination in the summer. And so Vail is definitely on board with this, you know, and people are going to Vail. And in Colorado, where it's very seasonal flows, people are saying, hey, um, this makes our season last longer. It, it makes it, it puts us in the mainstream, you know, in the sense that people can come out on Main Street and watch you do it. And, you know, the biggest thing that we do for a kayaker, you know, forget about the economy, forget about all that. The biggest thing we do for a kayaker is we uh, we give you a place to paddle right where you live or work. You know, you come out of the office and, and you go um, climb on a wave and surf at lunch hour. We do this at our office, which is why it's hard to call us after after 11 in the springtime and summer. Um, and get out and paddle and then get back in the office to finish your day. And so it has these impacts, but it has to be the right thing in the right place. And it's not the right place to build a whitewater park, you know, right next to the Yakagani River. It's not the right thing to build a whitewater park, um, you know, way out in the woods where you can choose between six or seven different whitewater experiences. And this whitewater park is one of them. What these parks do is they bring the mountain to Muhammad. It takes whitewater, which is a, a Rocky Mountain or an Appalachian deep in the woods experience, and it brings it right to where the people are, um, and and provides that experience there, and that's what makes these significant. Well, what what if I what if I have a river out in my backyard, and I call you up and I say, I want I want a feature. I want to put two features out here behind my house. What's what's it going to cost me? It's it, it's a it's a very um, scalable thing. So these parks are cubically more expensive with the widths of of the river. Um, and so when I can go into, um, uh, we just built a whitewater park here in Lyons, Colorado, um, with, with nine different drop structures that span the river, eight, because one of them is a double one, I guess, um, that span the river. And that total cost is about three to, to $600,000 on a river that size. Um, if I do a single structure on a very wide river, like the Chattahoochee in Atlanta, that by itself might be three to three to five hundred thousand dollars because it, it's so expensive to go across that width with all the material that we need to bring in. And so um, what I'd be saying is, hey, let's talk about you know how much it flows where you're at, um, how wide that river is, whether it's the right place to build a course because you need you need partners to raise that kind of money. And so that's a part of how we initiate these projects. That's what our initial consulting helps people do. So I imagine if so, you're you're kind of if you're going to get started out. You're gonna. You're looking at three, four hundred thousand dollars on the low end, and I imagine if you're gonna get into a complicated feature, and I'm I'm not talking about adding the pumps and all of that kind of stuff because I'm sure that is gonna put you well into the millions. But you're looking at between three hundred thousand dollars and a couple million dollars to put in a whitewater park. Um, 
Y- yes, yes and no. Um, that's a pretty good range for a typical project. Um, and uh, but there are places, you know, where people are saying, "I want a single drop structure um, in this." In this, yeah, I, I think that's actually a pretty good range. I've never seen one much cheaper than that three hundred thousand dollar range with current pricing. I guess so. Somewhere between three hundred thousand to one point five million is a typical range for in-stream. Um, and then for pumped parks, you know, your your kind of entry point is around four million. And uh, Oklahoma City, which we just finished, was about fifty-five million in total. Now, fifty-five million for the Oklahoma City Park. Yes, all in. Yeah, and that's a pump, that's a pump course, though, right? That's a pumped park, and we had to buy the land in inner city land. We had to purchase, um, and then you know we had they had very specific architectural. It's it's as architecturally stunning as it is um, fun, fun to paddle on. So that's a serious piece of change. Dedicate. I mean, would you say? I mean, that's fifty million dollars spent for for a white a, a whitewater a, a whitewater feature. I mean, a whitewater installation of some sort for people, whether it be rafting or kayaking, just, just for whitewater. It is a serious bit of change, but if you look at the profitability, for example, of Charlotte in a typical year, um, you know, they, they gross between 18 and 22 million. Um, now what's, and, I mean, do, you, do you have a sense of their profitability or that do they make, do they, make, I, do they know what they're doing? They know what they're doing. Yes. And they are profitable. And I, and I think that the, um, you know, because they are a nonprofit, they reinvest a lot. You see new, you know, for example, the high climb and the deep pool that just went in this year. You see new features going in every um, every single year there, and that's them reinvesting because they are a nonprofit. But I think that they clear about three or four million a year, probably. So um, let me. So it, maybe one way to look at it would be: it, what are the what are the most successful? What's what's the most successful whitewater? park in the U.S. and what is, what's, what's the cautionary tale? What's the Whitewater Park that says this is exactly how this should not have been done and why? I, I think that ASCII and Charlotte make a great contrast. I mean, they opened in the same year. Um, and we, we looked at very different things. Scott, Scott before, you, before you get into this, explain to our viewers what ASCII is. I think a lot of people uh, won't know what ASCII is. Point, yeah. Okay. Um, and so both Charlotte and ASCII, which is Adventure Sports Center International, are pumped, pumped to whitewater parks um, where all of the all of the water is artificial in the sense that we fill up a tank of water, we attach it to a pumping system, and we pump that water up to the top pool and let it flow naturally through a series of channels to the bottom pool again. So it works a lot like a fountain in your backyard, except for on this massive scale, which which makes that river look, act, and feel like a natural river out in the, out in the woods in, in the sense that we pump about that amount of volume and we have about that. Very similar slopes and energy in the water. Um, the difference between Charlotte and ASCII, and, and this was one of the learning lessons in Charlotte, is it, Charlotte's very accessible to a large population in an area that doesn't have white water right now. Um, and and in, a, in a little bit warmer climate, ASCII, for a number of reasons, was built on top of a mountain, remote from large cities, um, in, in an area that's that's difficult to get to and surrounded by great whitewater. And so the, the sort of cautionary tale that we've learned, and, and with Charlotte, they had to build their own road to get in, and that was, that was a lesson learned. When, when Charlotte was hard to find, 15 minutes from downtown, from downtown Charlotte, but it took a, a Sherpa and a guide to find this place, um, they struggled early on. 
And, and they were looking at numbers of about 70 to 120,000 people a year on site. When they got that strained out, when they built their access road, got the signage to the highway, got their marketing plan um, going, they now have almost a million people a year on site. So think about that. A million people who would not otherwise be exposed to whitewater, perhaps, are, are able to go back and use that site. And, and they created something that Charlotte didn't have in, in the sense they've created an adventure clubhouse with concerts, with mountain biking, with zip lines and obstacle courses and um, you know, this entire center that's dedicated to healthy, active outdoor lifestyles. And, and that became a real attraction. Um, and I don't know much about the operation of ASCII, but if somebody came to me and said, would you build it here or would you build it near downtown DC or would you build it near um, uh, you know, downtown Pittsburgh? I think I would be pushing them to say, with the amount of money you have, it's a better investment, much like a theme park, which are very seldom hidden away in the woods, to put this on a major interstate near a big population center um, and, and be used. And so what we know about Charlotte is 60% of the people who visit Charlotte come within come from within an hour radius. So they're, they're coming largely from um, from the near and they, and they come back, right? They, they go and they come back. People, people treat it like a clubhouse. And, and less are these destination visitors that choose to um, to drive out of a big city and go three or four hours and try that experience. And and those customers are, are not as likely to repeat, right? When you go on your big trip to go ski in the winter, one year you might go to, um, to Boone, North Carolina, right? The next year you might go to Killington, Vermont. The next year you might go to Breckenridge. And I think what we're learning from ASCII is it's the same thing. People want to come and try ASCII. But they also, on their next trip, can just as easily choose the Yakagami or the Cheat or the Gali, you know, or these other other destinations. And so I, I think they've struggled with attendance. The weird thing about ASCII, I, I, well, I'm a, the odd thing about ASCII was is before they built it, you know, they, they had some kind of planning committee that came around and, and talked to the local industry, you know, the, the businesses and whitewater businesses in the area and asked our opinion. And I think without exception, we all said it was a bad idea. And they were like, well, we're going to have all these people show up. We're like, we don't, that's just, that's not going to happen. And they said, well, when we have the slalom worlds, it's going to, these people are going to show up. We're like, no, that's, that's not going to happen either. But there was no, there was no, we didn't, that's didn't, what we were saying didn't seem to register at all. Who was, I mean, who were the people behind that, that decision? Um, and to be fair, I don't, I really don't know the economics of, of, of who built it or who spent the money on it. But it, they certainly didn't seem interested in what we had to say about, you know, the people who were there. Right. And I don't know the people. I mean, you know, I, Charlotte was my first whitewater park right out of college. And, uh, and so, so ASCII went to bid before I was able to even bid on it. Right? It, it just, it, 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 uh, it, it was sort of there all along. And so I've heard some stories along the lines of what, of what you're saying, but I, I don't know a lot of the background that's there, but one of the other things to think about in the context of this is Charlotte was an invention, right? I mean, there, there were pumped whitewater parks that were out there before, but that, that was the first one that was designed with its sole purpose of being a whitewater park built for recreation and commercial use that could also be used for racing. Every pumped whitewater park before that had been built for an Olympics and paid for by an Olympics and then recast as a rafting center that sort of, because of the way they were designed, they struggled. And so if you look at the layout of the buildings and the, the design of the architecture and the layout of the rapids in Charlotte, what you see is a, a place where you can 
you could we, we choreographed an ideal raft trip, and and we we created an expandable um, site that can handle this this capacity, and then we created um, all these ancillary things that make that place a destination for recreation, kids climbing areas, kids ropes areas. You know, it's a it's a family destination. It's very different than let's design this for the top one percent of paddlers everywhere, and. And we have learned so much. I mean, Charlotte struggled at first as well, right? We've learned so much about how to tune that recreational beast and do a profitable thing that 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 now we're smarter than we were, right? And Charlotte's a great example of a park that started and evolved to its market and became successful. When you look back at ASCII now, you look at it through those lenses, right? <laughs> but I don't think they knew that when they started up. I think they... Like they said, there's tons of kayakers around here. There's tons of rafters around here. Why can't we be a part of that? And what they've learned is 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 a difficult, a difficult, a, di a few difficult lessons now that we know more about whitewater parks. So let's talk about the environmental aspect of this. You know, we're in a, we're in a sport that's, you know, I think obviously, you know, tied to an environmental message. You must have some obstacles or resistance from people in an environmental standpoint. I mean, how do you address those concerns? Um, and, and it seems to me, I mean, obviously the bigger the project, the, 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 the better the, the business for you all, but there has to be a sense of responsible engineering or something going on when you build these things. I mean, how do you deal with that? So, you know, our number one hurdle is, is under the Clean Water Act, Section 404 um, authorization. And it's a permit that we chase after with the Army Corps of Engineers, but it's, it's what we call an umbrella permit. So they, they consult with, with all sorts of different regulatory bodies, you know, uh, parks and wildlife, fish and wildlife. Um, archaeological resources and all these different things that you can think of that would be an impact of the project that we built. And um, I'm a big believer in the Clean Water Act and, and a little worried about it in the current political atmosphere, right? Because if you go back to the 70s before the Clean Water Act and you look at, you know, what the world was like then compared to what we have now, it's a measurable benefit. Nobody wants that. I remember, <laughs> I remember, I remember paddling the Potomac as a kid in the 70s and early 80s. It was filthy. I mean, it was downright gross, you know. It, it's it's a huge. It's it's been one of these environmental laws that 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 has been dramatically successful. And so, um, up until now, up until very recently, um, the way we sort of handled permitting was uh, it was a it was an argument, right? You go in and you argue and you argue and you argue and you argue until somebody wears out, right? And that and that was how we got our permit. And uh, what S two O has done, which is different, and actually has come up with some very unique solutions, is. You know, as soon as we ran into that hurdle of, hey, we think this might be hard on the environment, we, we commissioned a study. We actually got Colorado Water Conservation Board to fund it. And we, we worked with a university in the Czech Republic, and we, we went in and evaluated all of the things that they thought were, were harmful from a whitewater park. And we redesigned the way people do whitewater parks so that they, they do have fish passage. They do have valuable habitat. Um, we, we've actually changed – one of the things that's great about whitewater parks is you can fund them, right? People get excited about them. You can get grants. You can get, um, you, you can get uh, funding for all different kinds of sources, whereas fish habitat projects often are starved for money based on, based on how they're funded. And so we've started to make our whitewater parks partially um, a, a recreational project, but we also restore the riparian zone. We restore the aquatic habitat that's there. And, and then we, we use these new design techniques to basically make the thing a positive from an environmental standpoint instead of a negative. And we're seeing that contribute to the permitting and permittability of these projects. But we're also seeing healthier rivers and, and, and you know, we've created a partner out of these regulatory agencies instead of a, 
um, you know, instead of making it a, a combative relationship. And so it's a better product and it, it, it's much easier to implement. And um, we're getting we're getting very promising results, you know, when you look at monitoring and things like that down in the future. And so so for us, that side of it has been a challenge, but it's also been a success story. So you guys, I mean, you guys aren't the only people doing this, I should point out. There are other companies in the U.S. Uh, building courses. Uh, and Bob Campbell's one of them. And there's John Anderson. He has He works with a guy also. Yeah, John Anderson's got a company. Bob Campbell doesn't really work in America, but you see him uh, working out of the country. Um, we have some licensing requirements there. And so, um, and then recreation engineering out of uh, Gary Lacey, I guess, out of Boulder, Colorado. And so there's three or four of us kind of knocking around that, that do this. And you guys bid against, you, you bid for these products? Is that how typically it works? They would, they would just farm us out to you guys? and or they Yeah, go ahead. It, it depends. I mean, we, we definitely have clients who come to us and say, we want what you make. You know, this is innovative and um, it's, it's industry leading. And so this is what we want. And depending on how they're financed, um, they can come to us and just hire us. If they're a public body, you know, if it's a city or a county project, typically there's a requirement to bid it. And so in those public projects, we, we, we compete with all those with all those American firms, yeah. I guess. I guess the thing I, I, I'm getting at is this—it's a big business. Like, I mean, how much how much money is being spent a year annually on artificial courses in the United States? It's in the millions. It's in the tens of millions, but I'm not sure in total. Um, you know, something like Oklahoma City skews it all by itself. But if you just talk about the in-stream parks, I would bet any given year has about two to three million dollars um, in construction going on in the country on average each year. Each year, yeah. I don't think a lot of pals realize how how much how big of a deal this is. I mean certainly money wise is a lot of money being thrown around for such a small sport. It is, yeah. And you know, I, I think also the sport needs to evolve towards it a little bit. You know, um, when you talk about all the events that, that happened in the you know kind of early to mid nineties in terms of freestyle and I, I guess in the late nineties, you know, that, that were industry driven, right? I mean, it's, it was Wasteboard, it was Dagger, it was, you know, Savage, it was it was Perception that were sponsoring events and sponsoring tours and, and adding a lot of energy to the events that were there already. It, it was very much um, industry driven. And what we're seeing now is a lot of the regular events are, are, are place driven, right? If you build a whitewater park for $55 million, you need to have an Olympic team trials there. You need to have a national championships there. You need to have training camps. and, and you know, not only that, but they're staffed for that, right? There's a guy there who's responsible for saying, let's have, you know, an event, you know, every couple of weeks here of some kind. And I think our sport needs to learn to leverage that. Now we have a place that's willing to organize it. We have a place with reliable water and reliable uh, features. Um, and so let's start to make those focal points for the sport, for development, for freestyle, for development, for slalom, for development, for instruction and swift water rescue and things like that. And so... Um, I, I think it'll be the next big movement in our sport because there is somebody there who's got an economic incentive to 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 be a driver for 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 growth. So since you mentioned it, real quick, real quick, what killed slalom? In a sentence or two. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should point out. You, we should point. Out, you were a very accomplished slalom racer. I, some people may not know that. I certainly know it. I mean, you were the the best slalom paddler in the United States, certainly for many years. And what are some of your credentials in, in international slalom? You know, I was a I was a three time World Cup champion and three time uh, world silver medalist and three time Olympian. So I, I've been to I've been to some big 
it's a big events that are out there and and slalom is is alive and strong in other places you know it's not as it's not as strong here and what what killed slalom is that we lost we lost the fun factor and it hasn't been lost in other places but it was lost here in the sense that when i was a kid um if if you wanted to go paddling and pursue it as a full-time endeavor the, there were two. There were two games in town, and one of them was buy yourself a big package of LSD, head to Friendsville, and become a squirt boater. And the other one was to be a slalom boater, and you could you could you could get on the road and go from event to event to event all over this country. You know, my first year racing, I raced in 36 competitive events in America. Without, well, five of them, five of them were, were, off, were off the continent, but the rest were in the country, and it was a full time tour. And, and not too much later, you know, there, you know, I would say by the mid nineties, I was racing in probably 12 significant domestic events. Um, and anybody who wanted to be a full-time boater and make a living at it was doing freestyle. And that, that was what they, that was the place where you could, you could really have a lot of fun and tour around. And I mean, those guys had a lot of fun <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, now that, that space is less freestyle unless you're, you know, one of like five or six people. And it's, it's more this extreme, you know, who can create the best video on Facebook, um, you know, and get a Red Bull sponsorship and, and start to live the dream that way. So you see a lot of people chasing it, chasing it in that direction. And I think if Slalom wants to get back to, um, to being, you know, a leader in this, in this industry, in this sport, they need to create more and funner events so that people can go out and race, and tour around and, and sort of live that dream um, that way. And that's that's the big challenge for them because I think they're a little short on funding too, but if there, if there was a way to be passionate about it, I'm sure you would have people who, who would who would do what, what I did and, and a lot of people did back in the early 90s. There you go. Let me ask you this, get, getting back to the Whitewater Parks, there is uh, there's some places that have really seemed to jumped on the bandwagon per se, like, Colorado seems to have a lot of whitewater parks. You know, here in Asheville, um, we have been talking about a whitewater park here on the French Broad forever. And I know that recently you worked uh, with Mark Hunt and some others on a proposal in uh, up in Woodfin on the French Broad. That was you, right, Scott? It was, yeah. And what what do you think? You know, just you laid some trends out as far as. Um, kind of the run of the river parks are growing in popularity and whatnot. What are some of, some of the trends as far as places these parks are going? Um, I, I think I think if you're going to talk about trends in Whitewater Park, you have to talk about SUP. And, and I realize that's not a place-based thing, but what we're seeing more and more are stand-up paddle boards everywhere um, at these Whitewater Parks. And it's, it's everything from the layperson who rents one at low water and plays around on the eddy lines or the pools and things like that to, um, you know, Durango, for example, has a great big surfing event every spring now on, on one of the features that's there, a couple of the features that are there. Um, and so surfing is becoming a big part of what's going on. Um, and the reason I bring up surfing in play space is when you, when you bring a whitewater park to a downtown area, that surfing slash boogie board experience is by far the most accessible right now. You know, if you're, if you're a 12 year old kid and you're worth your salt at all, you can jump in in a pair of swim trunks with a boogie board from Kmart and you can make that thing ride <laughs> and, and you can feel the current and you can, you know, you can start to do things. And so it's a very low hurdle to entry. It's not lessons. It's not a trip to the NOC for a week to learn how to roll. It's, it's, 
it's very accessible right there, right where you live. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in that area. And you're seeing in the design of these parks um, a real preference towards that experience because it brings a lot of users in. And even people who are who are great kayakers who have a whole history of kayaking still will get out and get on those boards and have fun if the features if the features um, if the features appropriate for that. And so it that's that's the biggest trend right now that's going on. And so um, part of that's adjustable features. We have an adjustable mechanism to make features adapt to different flow levels and uh, different things. You see that with a couple of the other designers, um, and that adjustability allows these obstacles or these these whitewater parks to adapt as the sport changes. And um, so you know that you have something state of the art now, but you also know that five years, ten years down the road, um, you'll have something. Uh, that's state-of-the-art at that point in time because your park can change with the sport. And that, that seems like a small thing, but, you know, go back to when I was racing, which which wasn't that long ago, right? Somebody said, oh, these guys are hopping their boats in the air. You know, you got to design a park for people who can fly. And, and I was like, you get out of here. You know, nobody's jumping their boats in the air without a waterfall to jump off of, right? Well, of course, it was like a year later, and all of a sudden, Stephen Wright's hanging out up in the air for like three seconds, right? And so the... the uh, the sport has changed dramatically and slalom even has gotten, you know, much more nimble, much shorter, much faster. Um, you know, green waves are all of a sudden a thing when foam piles were a thing a little while ago. An adjustable whitewater park allows that park to adapt to all those things. And so I think those are the two big trends that we're, that we're seeing out there right now in, in whitewater parks. Very cool. Well, I think that about does it on our time, Scott. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, say to our huge audience? <laughs> um you know i can't i can't think of much you know the biggest thing i would say is um going back to that to that earlier notion of how do these parks get started and the truth is they all get started at a community level they all get started with somebody who's very passionate about the sport and wants to see it happen there um s2o um is a is a great way uh you know we we're a great help in that process to give you the information that you need um to help you organize your thoughts about where and how and what kind of whitewater park you want to have and then to work with your town. We, we've been down that road a lot. And so um, go to our website, s2odesign.com, um, or just give us a holler on the phone um, and, and we can talk through getting, getting these projects initiated. Very cool. Is the, is the Woodfin Park going to happen? Yes. Yeah, actually, they, they, we won two big elections this year. You'll love this. Um, our, our one election was in Salmon, Idaho, and it was um, – there was an election there to make it illegal to design whitewater parks in this in the state of or in the city of Salmon, Idaho, and uh, that one did not pass. So we're not going to jail. And then our other election this year was uh, was to help fund the whitewater park um, in Woodfin, which is something I'm passionate about for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, that, that's a great. I, I spend a lot of time in the south and, and a lot of time um, paddling down that way, and and so. Um, you know, seeing a whitewater park in that community is great. And this park's also a memorial park. Um, and, and so it's something that we're, that we're very, um, uh, you know, heartfelt hoping that, that that happens as well, because I think it's a great memorial to, to a great habit. Well, very cool. Well, I think that about does it. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, Scott. And uh, I learned a lot, man. We'll have to have to bring you back on in the, in the future. Yeah, thanks for your time, Scott. Great, thanks. Hey, hold on. Yeah, hold on for one sec. Um, Morgantown. Is that going to happen? Um, 
I hope so. Um, you know, one place that doesn't have a lot of great whitewater parks is is Pennsylvania. Um, and um, I don't know a lot about that park. I've talked a little bit to John Lichter um, about it. And I, I wanted to get over and see it at the Worlds, and I just didn't get a chance. Um, but when you start talking about inner city, you know, making this thing happen in a, in a place where people live and adapting a dam um, and, and, and making that work, um, it, that's where these parks are in their sweet spot. And so Morgantown, in my opinion, is, is, is a well thought out project. And so, you know, we need to get in front of the right people and get them the right information to make this happen. But at the end of the day, um, that, that's a project that in my mind has legs. Very cool. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your time. You can uh, you can get back to the rest of your day. And yeah, Hammer Factor, find us online. I'll send you a link uh, after we get all this edited up. That's great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. All right. What do you think about that, John? It's interesting. I mean, here's the thing for me, right, is, is how do you – you build an artificial – like I, I, I'm trying to think how to verbalize this. You build a you build a course in a city. Well, scratch that. <laughs> Start again. I have something to something to say about this. Sure. Well, this is kind of my thoughts. Is yeah. and this is from you know I started paddling. I'm, I was born in Indiana. Went to college there, and we traveled. We were road warriors. You know, I adjusted my class schedule all through college to have no classes on Fridays. I tried to not have any classes on Thursdays either. Mm -hmm. And it was get in the car, drive five, six, seven, eight, nine hours every weekend. Yeah. Go do your paddling. You guys, did you where'd you paddle? South Bend or? We, no, we would come to West oh, Virginia okay. or we'd go to the Ocoee or we'd uh, go, gosh, we'd go wherever the water was. Right. Because um, everything was far away. Well, would you really use, I mean, but you were close to South Bend. Well, no, we were. I was at the far southern end of the state. I was. We were down. I was in Bloomington, and South you, Bend's all the way up. But would you here. paddle our official course every every weekend? Hang on, I'm getting to my point. Okay. But if if the Whitewater Park was there in Bloomington, we would have used that Whitewater Park and. I guarantee we would have brought a lot more people from that university and from that town into paddling mm -hmm. because they weren't we were addicted. We were going to go wherever we could. Mm -hmm. You know, we were past the point of being introduced into the sport. We were looking at gauges, buying guidebooks, trying to figure out a new place to go. Mm -hmm. You know, we you know, at the stage where we were at, the Whitewater Park wasn't going to bring any new revenue. But I guarantee you we would have been training there during the week getting in an hour or two session whenever we could. And I know a lot of our friends who weren't addicted. You know, it's like you get to a certain point in paddle sports, that's all you can think about. They, they, you have to, you know, we could have got a lot more people involved, if, even if it, for a short time, if there was a whitewater park there. So I think, personally, I think if you're going to put a whitewater park somewhere where there's not a lot of people, that's silly because no one's going to travel to a whitewater park. No. But I think if you have a population center of a million people, it could be, you know, family comes into town to see you. It could be a great thing to do. Right. And I think, uh, I think in, in that estimate, like Scott was saying, I think it's a good thing for the sport and could make money. I mean, my problem is, my problem is very personal. It's that I grew up in a town, I grew up in D.C., so we always had the Potomac. And West Virginia was never more, you know, West Virginia was never more than two or three hours away. Um, I've grown up with just assuming that 
your experience in kayaking had to be a river trip. You had to put on one place and take out in another. And that's what kayaking, that was the beginning and end of kayaking. And while there could be distractions like playboating or, or, um, you know, maybe the current variation of this is SU. Square boating. Square boating, right, exactly. At the end of the day, it's going to be running a river was going to be what, what kayaking was all about. You know what I mean? And so I guess I've always had this chip on my shoulder that an uh, artificial course is a lot of money for a flashy new toy that's going to, people are going to lose interest in after after a year or two. And I think you're right. I but Shipley, but Shipley, I think Shipley brought some, you know, I mean, he brought some data to the table here that suggests otherwise. Yeah, but I think you're right in the fact that if, if you're into this, if you're once you once you feel the point A to point B, and you run that river trip, and you have that navigational experience of going through that canyon or getting into that kind of you know unspoiled location where not a lot of people get to go, that's what's going to make you a lifer. Yeah. But I think something like a whitewater park can get your head wet. Right. And I think slalom. I think slalom also created a community of lifelong paddlers. Independent of river running. And I'm going to tell you this. So I think that's something else. Slalom is going to come. Slalom, I'm going to say it right here. Slalom and the athletic endeavors of kayaking are are going to come back. Well, I'll tell you. I think that the training that, you know, I just think that that athletic athletic part of the sport is getting ready to make it come back. Well, here's the thing is that, you know, you look at some people who are sort of running, running the, you know, the extreme racing circuit right now in the country, in the U.S. They're not what you'd call classic athletes. You know what I mean? They're partying as much as they're as they're charging hard. You know what I mean? But there's not the work ethic that you know, like my my wife put in when she was training slalom. She was up doing three three workouts a day, you know, five six days a week, up at six every morning training. Um, you bring that kind of physical discipline to extreme racing, you're going to be a whole nother level of competitor. That's a yeah. right. I mean, you will you will start. You know, you'll have a tremendous advantage over anyone else and is if extreme racing gets more serious that's going to become the next evolution that's the first thing the second thing is is that when people everyday paddlers realize how much better a kayaker they get after working in gates oh. and, and even the, just one or two gates we're kind of you know? in the desert right now in terms of slalom, where people don't have any exposure to it but it's, i think it's one of those things that if people get on some gates and slowly start to build up these courses and, and people see the immediate tremendous profound results mm-hmm. And their paddling skills after paddling gates. And the thing is, is they'll be looking at a class two course or a class one rapid with gates in it. And they have to go, they say to themselves, oh, I have to go through these 10 gates without touching a pole. No problem. Wrong. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Wrong. I mean, they were sent back to school. They've been paddling for five, six, seven years. They think in any turns, any turn, they have no idea how hard it is and how much this challenges your, your concepts and, of, of running a river. You're 100% right. Also, the art of attainment. You know, this is a whole nother discipline that very few people are into. Yeah. But you get out there and start having to carry your momentum up river. You yeah. really rise. Which has its roots in slalom. Yeah, which has its roots in slalom. So. Yeah. Anyway, very interesting. All right. Now on to our favorite part of the show, our rants and raves segment. What did we decide? I've already forgotten. Um, I'm raving. No, you're ranting. No, I'm raving. No, I have a rave. Well, my we're going to both rave then because my rave is on global warming. I think it's a rant. I think what you're trying to say. No, I'm raving on global you know, The glass is half full here because right. the mountain biking season here in Asheville has been extended. It may be 100% year-round. No longer is it wet outside. Yeah. It's always warm. The sun always shines. And if you can deal with the forest fires, 
you're just out there shredding. So and you'll have oceanfront property in just a few years. And exactly. So you'll get you'll get to you'll get to truly surf and turf. You'll be able to ride your mountain bike at the top of the mountain, right down to the ocean, and catch some waves. So. Call it a rant, if you will, but I'm raving about global warming. I'm, I'm going to suggest it's a rant. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Right. If you, you're lucked out today because it's cold and its front went through, but we yeah. have been socked in with forest fires and smokes for three weeks now. Right. So That's, a, that's great. Give me some. <laughs> <laughs> that's not great. <laughs> anyway, rant or rave, I digress. All right. I'm going to give you a real honest-to-God rave, and it's going to sound like a plug for our company, but it's not. The rave is for double tunnel spray skirts. That's right. Double tunnel spray skirts. What I'm talking about... Wait, how does this work? Okay, I'm glad you asked. This works like this. You take the inner tunnel of your paddling, your dry top or your dry suit or whatever, you cut it out. You just remove it. The inner tunnel. You take your spray skirt, you put a neoprene outer tunnel. A separate tunnel goes around the outside of your current tunnel. So what happens is instead of, instead of water, like your current configuration... When you're paddling, you're playboating, and water comes blasting the deck of your boat. It takes the outer tunnel of your dry tunnel and puts it into your armpits. And then water comes pouring down into your boat underneath your tunnel, right? The way it works now is that your jacket tunnel tucks in between the two tunnels on the spray skirt. So when water comes rushing up the deck of the boat, it rushes up onto your jacket and then down into the outer tunnel of the spray skirt, out into these drain holes out around the bottom of the second Ooh. outer tunnel, Right? So what that means is you have a dry deck, dry seal, right? No more jacket blowing up around your armpits. No, uh, and no, no worries about getting stuck into a, a strainer with your one-piece dry deck. It's going to be as dry as a dry deck, but without the without the hassle and danger, right? We made a double tunneled skirt years ago called a Deuce. No one bought it. But but wait a second. You yeah. have to have something, a piece of gear. To go in the double tunnel, that's not. I mean, you can't just have layer for layer. It's going to get too fat around your waist. No, no, it's it's it goes like this. You have you get rid of the inner tunnel in your jacket. You don't need that anymore, right? right? You have the spray skirt against your layering piece. Then your jacket goes over top of the outer the the spray skirt tunnel. Then the outer tunnel goes over top of your jacket. Okay, so three layers. So the bottom of the jacket has none of the. Whatever you call that, where it holds it tight and all that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, you can keep all that there. That's fine. That's incidental because you need to pull the jacket over your head and stuff like that. So it needs to loosen up. Interesting, right? Way drier. But so you can call your skirt manufacturer of choice and request a double tunnel spray skirt. I think most people could accommodate that. Interesting. Yeah. There you go. Well, I think that does it for episode eight. We missed Lewis while we were on the show, wondering where Lewis was at. In true kayaker form. Lewis says, Hey, Hammers, I'm out on Van Island and going to run some whitewater. Can't make it today. Please express my apologies to our loyal listeners. Tell Shipley what's up. <laughs> I, I thought for sure who's a Hooters negotiating <laughs> our, our access to clean water and rivers. Uh, like well, you're going to have to, I'll get the tech, you know, this is the lo-fi edition. I'll get the audio board and everything set up for the next time so I won't have such a big fail. And we, you'll have to come down weekly. We have to make it a commitment to improve our audio. Can I we know. make that a promise we have, to, our, to our listeners? We're, our listeners, the, kind of the problem with getting more listeners is now there's more feedback, which we love, but a lot of it's like, clean up your audio. I don't want to hear the reverb. I don't blame them. It would drive me crazy. So... We'll get it figured out, and uh, onward and upward. Thank, thank you for listening.